0: The Future Reader Urania was easy to follow. She wore a heavy black coat that hugged her figure and a grey fur hat that might have warmed the head of a Russian princess. It seemed odd that she never looked right or left she crossed a footbridge leading to the centre of town. Despite the cold, she walked meditatively, which is to say that her pace was sedate but regular. Strands of black hair flew about in wisps from under her hat. It was the middle of February and visibility was poor. It had been snowing heavily. Anton was feeling the cold more than usual. The joints in his fingers were painful, so he thrust his hands into his pockets and twiddled with an old tissue. He dallied 10 or so paces behind his muse, Before crossing the footbridge himself, he pretended to study a lamppost. Large letters on a flyer pasted to the lamppost advertised performances of Orfeo and Eurydice by Christoph Willibald Gluck. To compel people to value the coming of this opera, The poster had a drawing on it of a cauldron brimming with gold coins. As Anton crossed the footbridge, he suspected strongly that if there was something hidden anywhere, it was hidden in the cave. He couldn't get this notion out of his head. He followed Urania into a grid of narrow alleys. After she walked by his bank, he ducked into the entrance and took out his wallet. He wanted to make it look as if he had some business there. He pretended not to see her walk into a passage behind the bank. Through the glass front, he observed her entering one of the older buildings further down the alley. When he got to the door she'd gone through, he was presented with all the evidence he needed to confirm the woman he had been following was indeed a modern incarnation of a daughter of Zeus. The evidence, engraved on a brass plate mounted by the side of the door, was the name of a company, Urania & Co. The legend below the name indicated that the company was specialized in bespoke cartography. Anton's muse kept her distance after that. She would never return to the café. He wouldn't see her again until the summer of 1882. He was also destined to meet her nephew, Orpheus, but that was even further in the past. In good time, I will explain how all of this happened. For now, what I need to point out is that from the day he followed Urania to the door of her office, all of the sentences and paragraphs Anton wrote about me accumulated and condensed differently. He knew he wasn't writing a novel anymore, so much as describing something that was really happening. With each sentence that sprang from a few bare kernels tossed out from beyond, he was taken into the lattices of a story that grew independently, revealing its own bizarre structure. It was legitimate for him to wonder if there was any point in writing a book about me when it was only ever going to be dictated by a muse. Anton had his pride. Even after finding out he was in the earthly presence of a minor goddess, If he could write just one sentence about himself, it would have been this I am a prospector for value The hope that somewhere in the universe there was such a thing as a measure of value had made Anton excited about his new novel to begin with Now he didn't know what to think He felt stuck It wasn't exactly writer's block It was the opposite He would have liked to have persisted with Otto and Flames in his own methodical way But Urania's constant cajoling made him have to revise the seven or so chapters he'd already written. Connected with his dream about something being hidden in gold, the sentence, I am a prospector for value, suggested that the rest of Anton's book was something that could only be mined in uncharted and dangerous territory. Because gold is scarce, and because practically every civilization has agreed that it should be held as common currency when all else fails, there would be no point in prospecting for a good book in a place where anybody might be able to find it. Once I was back in Vienna, Anton believed he could hear Urania's voice in virtually all his thoughts. What she was saying seemed to be guiding him towards a climax in the life of his book that this would happen soon became apparent while he sat on a rock off the coast of Georgia. In time you will learn how it came to be that Anton found himself sitting on a rock in the Black Sea. For now, take it from me, it happened. All around him there was nothing but the waves of an undulating ocean. Urania's words spilled out over his shoes. It was in that instant that Anton suddenly understood. If he wanted to know how his future book ended, he would have to ask his future reader. This conundrum came from nowhere, and it seemed to lead nowhere. If his future reader was the only person capable of telling him how the rest of his book went, it meant Anton was destined to search for something that could never be found. It was only by virtue of his access to the hiddenness of things that a contrary and otherwise unthinkable notion began to work itself into his thoughts. What happened next would be the most physically challenging immersion he'd experienced so far. It happened on the 16th of February 2019, the day before my arrival in Vienna. He was sitting back at his regular spot in his favorite café, Urania hadn't come back. She would never return. He was still using his laptop to write with. The word orbiting, as it appeared on the screen, irritated him. It occurred in a sentence he'd been working on for some time. The question, orbiting his recollection of the goat dome, was distinctly unhelpful and nihilistic. He wondered if he shouldn't replace orbiting with striking. Striking seemed the better option. While a question could orbit a recollection, if the question happened to be nihilistic, it was going to have to strike whatever orbits it. Or smack into it. Or at least nudge it. As he often did, to get away from the burden of what he was thinking, Anton looked up. The decision about which word to use was forgotten. Along the back wall of the café there was a row of scratchy mirrors set in a series of turned frames. In one of the mirrors he saw the reflection of a priest with glossy black hair and a pinched expression. A waitress was handing the priest a menu. Anton didn't see the waitress, nor did he see the priest. It was more like seeing their silhouettes and knowing something about the people behind them. Their shapes combined into a fuzzy orange brightness. The brightness rotated into a bubbly plasma. He saw the bubble approaching. Within it he saw the streaks of a blue more radiated image dreaming itself together. The image was accompanied by a gentle trumpeting sound. To begin with the oranges and blues had no recognizable order. They stretched and trailed beyond the cafe mirrors. The trumpeting remained soft, It seemed as far away as the cave, now permanently lodged in Anton's mind. From time to time, inharmonious doodles drifted over the humming trumpet. The doodles turned out to be voices. They were saying parts of sentences. The humming was more like buzzing. There was a loud clicking as well. Anton thought he heard someone say something important. The voice said, Where I come from, we say... With time, anything is The last word spoken was lost in a whining noise, like the rusty hinges on hundreds of doors being opened at once. This dirge muffled and thickened. It intensified until the rush of clicking noises crawling over Anton's face could only have been a swarm of insects. They were the size and color of apple seeds, with silvery wings and black heads. Their bodies glowed orange when they were airborne but were blue at rest. Anton spun around. Casting his arms out like a windmill, he spluttered and spat in disgust. He'd forgotten how old he was. While gyrating like a dancer in the glowing roar, he thought he could make out what looked like a statue. In the glimpses he caught of it, the face seemed bearded, or the beard was being molded into shape as he looked. It was curly and well-trimmed, Nothing like Anton's more bushy growth, now crawling with bugs. The statue was naked, or it was becoming naked. It was becoming younger and more muscular. In an attempt to confront what he was seeing, Anton stood rigidly to attention. Despite the distraction of so many bugs, he imagined he was looking at his future reader. He closed his eyes and gritted his teeth. He put his hands over his ears. The swarm was everywhere, clogging and clawing. They were in Anton's nose. They were trying to get into his mouth. They were looking for something to create. By gathering together in formations, they were able to assemble everything he perceived. They created the statue of his future reader. At the same time, the swirls and edges they flew in flattened into the contours of a cavernous space. They packed themselves into recognizable shapes until the cave was finished and the statue, just a few steps away, was older and wiser. The bugs had made a lectern for the statue to stand at. It was illuminated by candles. As Anton watched, the lectern rose to the height of the statue's chest. Once it was in place and the cave had congealed into a finished setting, the clicking stopped. It became a faint but wistful melody. The statue was alive. It turned a page of the book on the lectern and continued to read. You are but a mangy dog. Somewhere else in the cave, Anton could hear the melodic trills of a French conversationalist. The echo of a high pitched voice down one of the passages spoke tenderly to an unseen audience as if, in response, a dog barked. The statue was too intent on the book it was reading to notice these disturbances. As it stood, a single garment made of coarse cloth draped itself over the body. It flowed to the ankles. The man's leather sandals had straps that ran crossways over his marbled feet. Colors began to shimmer over him, so that he looked more real with each moment that went by. He became thin and wiry, and his beard was already longer than Anton's. He turned to the next page of the book. Anton knew the book the statue was reading was his book about me. He thought he must be in his future. There was no way of verifying this. It was a feeling he had, and then it became a fact. Not only that, the man the statue had turned into was obviously the philosopher Heraclitus. Anton praised himself for this. He could have thought of no greater critic to explain to him how Otto in Flames ended. Between his thumb and his forefinger, Heraclitus lifted the last page of the book. He held it midway in the air and looked up from his lectern. His eyes were grey and steady. He said nothing. There was no expression. Shortly after Heraclitus had finished reading Otto in Flames, he frowned and said something in a language Anton had never heard before. Yet he understood it. As well as having two eyes, Heraclitus had two voices. One of the voices was saying, Even dogs bark at what they don't know. Anton nodded. He didn't know what Heraclitus meant by this, but it didn't matter. He was so helplessly in awe of his future reader, he would happily have agreed with any of the philosopher's postulations. The other voice spoke in a whispered modern German. It was saying, Am I just a pebble in the rubble? The words had an anxious human inflection, as if the young man at the next table had been remonstrating with his girlfriend. Using a metaphor too devastating for the occasion, what the young man in the café had done was call into question the nature of his girlfriend's love for him. The shock Anton felt rose to his gullet. Had he not cupped his hands over his mouth, the lurch from his belly would have been overpowering. As it was, he felt himself being thrown sideways this involuntary movement caused him to shove the edge of the table he was sitting at upwards. Everything on the table the crockery, the cutlery, a bowl of sugar, a fake rose in a glass jar all of it clattered to the floor. The glass and most of the crockery shattered on impact. It may not have been the most shameful moment of Anton's long life He hadn't actually soiled himself, but he was sickened by the displacement he'd experienced. He couldn't believe the mess he'd made. All he wanted to do was vanish. His heart was thumping at an alarming rate. He knew people were looking. The waiters were looking. The priest was looking. There was only one thing for it, and it didn't involve paying the bill. Anton excused himself, explaining to the young couple at the next table that there had been an insect in his coffee. He went home and continued to feel apologetic for the rest of the day. The incident provoked a long passage in the journal he left under his mattress before he disappeared. Written as if it had been a traumatic memory he was still having to contend with, the passage recalled how Heraclitus had made himself apparent in a cave as his future reader, and how Anton would struggle after that to return to the cave because he didn't know where it was. While reality may seem reassuringly consistent, the writer was learning that its opposite should never be dismissed. The ancients had been moved to refer to reality's opposite as the epiron, a word the Greeks used to speak of things that have no ending. Anton took many of his cues from this word. It may be said that his imagination was warped by it. He was thoroughly aware, though, that Urania's gift wasn't yet his to do with as he pleased. If he was going to find the cave again, there was a great deal to be done. Chief among his tasks was to stop being so self-conscious, which meant he was going to have to lose himself. Despite the incomprehensibility of his immersions, Anton was determined to discover as much as he could about the cosmos his future reader lived in. Although he must have known that attempting to go back to a place where everything had already happened was treacherous, it didn't stop him trying to lure me there against my will. Chapter 2 Otto was in the clouds. By asking himself what a beginning is, he was able to delve further into his reverie. He had a window seat. It felt more like a beginning, it felt more like a beginning than an end, a voice was saying. It was the voice of a child. This inner voice was being precocious, another more mature voice, presumably the voice of a madman, told Otto that what was happening was also a series of incremental changes, with no conceivable starting point and no possible ending. Had he been looking at what he should have seen, jetting southwards, Otto might have attended to the graded ruffles in the vast white carpet below. But his eyes were fixed on a deepening blue above. At first it was endless, endless, then it was beginningless. At its its height it turned into a blackness with hints of marine, which he had to strain to see. He shook his head, and the whole aircraft shook. There was another voice too. This was the voice of confusion. It was wondering about the origins of the words that came to him out of nowhere. But wondering about origins, Otto already knew, was useless. There's no beginning to an origin, he thought. You may as well ask what blackness is. The priest grunted. He was in the seat next to Otto's, reading a book. Otto couldn't see the cover, but he could tell that the priest was reading in English. Before looking away, he was able to pick out a sentence. It was the strongest recognition yet of a catastrophe about to happen. What was truly arresting was the ring on the priest's right hand. The size of it. The dark metallic sheen. It looked more like an industrial bearing that had been forced onto the man's ring finger. The turbulence quickened. The ride had been lumpy before. Now the judders were becoming severe. Otto made a noise indicating that he was at peace. It was sometimes called a harumph. But such noises needn't be disaffected. The voice of the noise sounded comfortably bored. It was the voice of gratitude. Otto thanked his body for not putting him through the terrors of flying again. He used to hate flying. Now he didn't mind it. His body yawned. As he recovered from the yawn, his awareness of the priest became less acute. The worsening turbulence stimulated other passengers into the production of sounds calibrated to express their dismay. Twice the aircraft fell from the sky. Each time there were shouts. Many more shouted the second time. Even this collective sense of doom had no impact on Otto. He felt fine. The only concession he made to the idea that the end was near was to lose track of his inquiry into what the beginning of an origin is. He looked out of the window again, up into the sky, but he couldn't keep looking up. Without wanting them to, his eyes rolled downwards from the darkness above to a cloud formation bubbling into a rich display below. The priest grunted again. His grunting although technically repetitive, did not convey any anxiety. It was a standard annoyed grunt. As Otto stared at the storm below, he speculated that the turbulence his fellow passengers were experiencing, as the foreshadowing of their deaths, had been making it difficult for the priest to read his book. What Otto was looking at, from this high vantage, was the upward drift of a cumulonimbus, as brightly lit as the sun could make its black interior. The rising shape stunned him into the haziest recollection that there had, before he woke up that day, been a cataclysm. While the aircraft passed over it, the shifting cumulonimbus looked up at Otto with a wide open mouth, a bulbous nose, and shocking black eyes. It was shouting at him in a language he didn't understand, Its mouth was so cavernous, whole towns could have been swallowed in it and forgotten. Although Otto didn't believe he'd ever slept in a cave, he remembered one he'd spent a sleepless night in once. The memory came as an unexpected interruption, along with the reek of dung. To expel it, he pushed his nose onto the plastic of his window. The question nudging his recollection of the smell of goat dung was distinctly unhelpful and nihilistic. He heard the words, Am I just a pebble in the rubble? The voice asking this was another one that seemed to come from nowhere. It sounded like the voice of complaint. No answer came from the cave still shouting at him, only something inscrutable. By the time Otto understood this much, The cloud was streaking into a left-behind shape, transitioning subtly and arbitrarily over a life-sized map of Central Europe. Britain had fallen far behind. It was little more than a shrinking set of coordinates to the northwest. Yet it was a landmass that had given Otto Loser nearly all of his meaning. Of the man who had vanished from Vienna in his early twenties, there was hardly anything left. The man he became was almost murdered. This happened in 2016. He was hit over the head with a metal pole. When Otto woke up, he knew he was different. Britain was different as well. During the week he lay in a coma, there had been a referendum on whether or not everything should change. After he went back to work, With each month that went by, what welled up constantly, as plain as the devastation of a nuclear strike, was that he could no longer accept his life as it was. Because he'd won the status of being able to speak languidly of legal matters, he'd been able to use his lawyering to mask his anxieties. After someone tried to put him out of his misery with a metal pole, things went well for a time. Otto felt his personality had changed for the better, The past was always going to be a drawback. It would follow him around wherever he went. But he could finally draw comfort from the fact that his future had been foretold. He was strolling on a beach when he was attacked from behind. One moment he was kicking a pebble in the sand, the next moment it was as if he was dead. The police never found out who did it. The medically induced coma lasted 10 days. When he was brought back to reality, Marie was by his side. She'd stayed with him for a day or two, but then she returned to Vienna. Although they didn't talk about it then, Otto had always known he would go after her, to be with her again. He could best review these details of his life if he kept his eyes glued to the darkness above the aircraft. In that darkness, he could just about hear the dying man's thoughts. These were the thoughts of the other Otto, dying on a beach. Left to expire, even that highly strung lawyer felt nothing but remorse. Out of the corner of his deadening eye, he'd seen a vapor trail turning pink. It stretched across his dwindling line of vision, drifting towards the sunset. In those final glints, The aircraft the other Otto was watching had been no bigger than a sparkle. His one dying thought, before he lost consciousness altogether, was that he couldn't bear the idea of that jet flying away without him. The cabin shuddered violently. Over the intercom, the scratchy voice of the pilot told them that the wind buffeting them was strong and northerly. A child shrieked and began to sob. It was the strongest recognition yet of a catastrophe about to happen. The priest lowered his book. In his softly accented English, he said, It's no use. I can't go on. Otto glanced at him and found himself in agreement. He performed the slowly paced nod of a sympathetic bystander on witnessing someone stumble. Their brief exchange, coupled with what Otto had already gathered subliminally, sitting alongside the priest, permitted him to open new lines of speculation. Despite his long black cassock, Otto's neighbor appeared to be short and on the round side. This suggested an open temperament. On the other hand, his nose was turned upwards, close to his eyes, indicating a secretive nature. Otto decided that the priest was from somewhere in Latin America, His hair was black, and his pocked complexion was fused with the proud look of an ancient and dispossessed people. The fastidious way in which he folded down the corner of the page to mark his place in the book he was reading was an indication that he was someone who insisted on order and control. Otto considered the incongruously large ring on the priest's right hand. It reached from the knuckle to the middle joint of his ring finger. On closer inspection, Otto saw that it was adorned by lines of squiggly markings. He didn't recognize them as letters, but that's what they were. The ring seemed to be made of iron or some other heavy metal. A voice in Otto's head told him that the priest was heavily burdened. It was the voice of judgment. When the priest turned to look at him, Otto surprised himself by launching into a short speech. None of it had been prepared. The words leapt from his mouth in gulps. I haven't flown in years, he said. I used to loathe it. Before, whenever I flew, I was sure I was going to die. <laughs> Today, I am pleased to say my fear of flying is a thing of the past. The priest permitted himself a faint smile. He didn't seem in the least phased by the intensive forwardness of his Germanic travelling companion. His smile might have been an attempt to come across as disinterested yet sage but it was too constrained. The lips were sufficiently raised to form a recognizable expression of sympathy but the cheek muscles were clearly working to push the expression back into a neutral position. Because his regard had been compromised in this way, it occurred to Otto that he might be impatient or perhaps even intolerant. To Otto's surprise though, the priest responded philosophically. He said, Where I come from, we say, with time, anything is possible. As a lawyer, Otto would have considered this statement to be inadmissible, if not unsustainable. As a person who had been almost murdered and transformed, he was able to express his real and abundant sympathy. He nodded and grinned. It was the kind of nod performed in short up and down movements, bobbing his head rapidly from the back of his neck. There was a tension in his voice when he said, I believe that must be true. Although the priest had only been prompted by a few words concerning the passing of Otto's fear of flying, the maxim, with time anything is possible, opened out horizons Otto could easily become passionate about. Since the attack on him in 2016, his brain had been functioning in unexpected ways. He was inclined to believe that he understood life less than ever. Sometimes, he didn't even think he was conscious anymore. If anything, Otto thought he was an automaton, which meant that everything that happened was the natural consequence of something that had happened before. Although he looked much the same as he'd always looked, once he'd recovered medically from his injuries, very little Otto did resemble the man he used to be. One of the obvious signs that the old him had died was the fact that he'd wanted nothing more than to write about his experiences. Had he not suffered such a blow to the head, he surely wouldn't have wanted to commit anything so personal to paper. Yet, in the wake of the incident on the beach, Otto had gone on to produce what he thought of as an autopsia, Called Life in Spot Water. It was in this examination of his experiences that he first argued he must be an automaton. The automaton he had in mind was a multifaceted thing, with no choice but to react spontaneously to an apparently arbitrary flow of events called life. Notwithstanding the undesirability of Otto's strange new perspective, he regarded being an automaton as something quite positive it made everything that happened seem more possible. In his excitement over the priest's words about anything being possible with time, he'd hoped to elicit a discussion on the meaning of life. But the priest had turned away. Whoever had spoken those fine words had sunk back into the man sitting next to Otto with a pinched expression on his face.